Welcome to today's edition of Time in the Vineyard with Pastor Teacher Jeff Toring. Today's broadcast is being brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. Amos 9, verse 1. I saw the Lord standing upon the altar, and he said, Smite the lintel of the door, that the posts may shake, and cut them in the head, all of them. And I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away, and he that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, thence my hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. And though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence. And though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, thence will I command the serpent, and he shall bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, thence will I command the sword, and it shall slay them. And I will set mine eyes upon them for evil and not for good. And the Lord God of hosts is he that toucheth the land, and it shall melt, and all that dwell therein shall mourn. And it shall rise up wholly like a flood, and shall be drowned as by the flood of Egypt. It is he that buildeth his stories in the heaven, and hath founded his troop in the earth. He that calleth for the waters of the sea and poureth them out upon the face of the earth, the Lord is his name. Are ye not as children of the Ethiopians unto me, O children of Israel, saith the Lord? Have not I brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaphtar, and the Syrians from Ker? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth, saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. As we make our final chapter here in Amos, we are now instructed that the Assyrians are going to come to make captivity and invade the north, and then it won't be much longer before the Babylonians come and invade the south. It's bad news. We must acknowledge bad news when bad news comes. To be wise, we don't want to paint it something that it isn't, but we want it to be true so that we would know how to devise a plan according to God's word and how to handle these things. The captivity that he speaks of here in advance was eminent, and we know that it did come. The Assyrians came and invaded and were butchers, and then it wasn't much longer before Nebuchadnezzar laid siege of the south. It came true, because God's word is always true. We know when we learned that Amos, the key verse of Amos, is woe unto them that are at ease in Zion. Now, the question then would be is if the damnation is eminent, if captivity is eminent, and these things are the writing on the wall, What's the point of that phrase? Why say, woe unto them that are at ease in Zion, if it's all going to collapse no matter what? 
we learned that God uses us men and women to be those that would fill in the gap, that would stand in the gap. He, he uses the watchman on the wall and declares these things, that we are his footmen and that we can make a difference. We can steer the very hand of God by his graciousness and by his spirit and we can make an impact. If God be for us, who can be against us? Even in the darkest of times, if he is for us, which he is, who can stand against us? When we come into this passage, Amos sees something that is very peculiar in verse 1. He sees the Lord in his temple in a place that is customary for the priest to be working where normally a bullock or the lamb would be laying upon the altar, slain, and then fire would come down and the ritual and the liturgy would take place. But this, now he sees something very different in verse 1. He says, I saw the Lord... But this time he's standing upon the altar. And he said, smite the lintel of the door. This is a place, this altar is a place where God's wrath is normally soothed. We learn the definition of propitiation, that the wrath of God would be satisfied at the death on this very altar. The, the wrath of God because of sin would be soothed and taken care of. But rather than that taking place, we have the Lord standing on it in wrath. They have tread underfoot the blood of the covenant. They have taken things that are sacred and made them useless. Still going through the motions, but useless. Because of this, he stands on the altar and he says to smite the lintel of the doorposts that they may shake and cut them, it says, in the head, all of them. What Amos is seeing is the Lord is commanding that the very posts of the building of the temple would begin to shake so that the roof and the entire building would collapse on these people. It would be devastating. It would be no different than if the balconies fell down and crushed everybody beneath. But this is by the Lord's command. And not only that there may be some that are not crushed by the ceiling. And he says, God says, and I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that flees of them shall not flee away, and he that escapes of them shall not be delivered. It is a total catastrophe. Verses 2 through 4, he tells us there's no escape. For three transgressions and for four, a fire. They transgressed three times, they transgressed four times. God said a fire would come. And even despite that, he told the prophet, if you still repent at the very last moment, the Lord won't do it. But they wouldn't. They just wouldn't. Because they felt like they couldn't. So there's no escape, verses 2 through 4. If they hide on the top of Carmel, if they hide down in the ocean, if they hide here or hide there, God will find them. And it's a catastrophe. To become the verse 5, it says, And the Lord God of hosts is he that touches the land, and it shall melt. 
and all that dwell therein shall mourn, and it shall rise up wholly like a flood, and shall be drowned. And he says that the illustration is that they shall be drowned as by the flood of Egypt. He's reminding them, he's bringing them back to the memories that were painted so vividly for them of the flood of Egypt when the Red Sea crashed in upon the Egyptian soldiers and all the horses and the chariots and the the horror that was seen in the aftermath of that. You know, you look at that, you think, it's a victorious and triumphant time because the children of Israel escaped from the hand of Pharaoh and the Pharaoh's army and, and you look at this like it's a triumphant time and it may be but you realize that those were dads and uncles and grandfathers that were Egyptian that drowned in that flood people with eternal souls were in that flood and then the aftermath of that the the sound of the crushing down of of the sea upon them, and then the after silence, the hush of what they saw as all these thousands of corpses are floating in the water, the dead horses are floating in the water and drowning. It is an absolute scene of horror. He's reminding them of that. Because God oftentimes wants us to remember where we were. And who we were. Remember where you come from. You that are successful now. Not everybody was like that. You have to remember it's not always good. Times weren't always good. It's good to reminisce. The Lord tells us often. How often in the Bible does he bring up the Red Sea parting? Over and over and over. It's good to reminisce and to review for our own purposes. So what I would like to do is I would like to, now that we are coming to the end, when the, when the kingdom is coming to a crushing halt, what I would like to do is just review and remind us of its beginning stages when it became the glory of the world. So if you would, throw your ribbon in here and let's go back to Second Chronicles chapter 9. And we go back to the glory days. As a child, I used to enjoy looking at the black and white photo albums. Uh, My my mom and dad both were stock car drivers. They were young. It was always black and white. You know, my always had not a hair out of place. I don't care what it was. If there was a camera around, every hair was exactly in place. Dad was a greaser with the biggest wave, you know, and they were cool. So it was cool to see those kind of pictures of our family, you know, the uncles and aunts, everybody's there, grandma, all the great aunts, all the old folks were there, but they were young. It's good to review, to know our heritage, where we come from, because by that we can learn where we're going. When you come into Second Chronicles chapter 9, this is the zenith of the kingdom of heaven. The world is chasing after God's kingdom and God's people. We have to chase people down to give them the gospel. And then we chase them and talk to them and we tell them about Jesus. And they don't want to hear it. Even though their life and soul depends on the very gospel that we're telling them, they don't want to hear it. But here in the zenith of this, they don't have to go anywhere. People are traveling from afar to hear of this Jesus Christ, this God of Israel. Even the queen of Sheba, the queen of the superpower of Egypt, has made journey to talk to the king of Israel. And if you jump in in verse 5, she has heard so much about these godly people. Second Chronicles 9.5, it says, 
And she said to the king, Solomon that is, It was a true report which I heard in mine own land of thine acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not their words. I, I couldn't believe it was even true. It was too good to be true. Until I came and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the one half of the greatness of thy wisdom was not even told me. For thou exceedest the fame that I heard. Her first thing that she says about the kingdom of God on earth. Happy are thy men. And happy are these, even your servants, which stand continually before thee and hear thy wisdom. There's absolute joy throughout the realm because of just the wisdom that has been laid out within the kingdom of heaven. Absolute joy. People, people can't stop when they're walking down the road. The melody is in their tongue. She says, the half hath not been told even what I have seen. Verse 8 says something very peculiar concerning this earthly kingdom of Solomon. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighted in thee. Look what he says here. To set thee on his throne. She knows. This is universal information. That's not Solomon's throne, actually. That is God's throne on which Solomon sits. She knows. This is divine and human at the same time. Blessed be the Lord thy God, Yahweh, which delighted in thee to set thee on his throne to be king for the Lord thy God. Because thy God loved Israel. Now see, that's why we don't put up with this nonsense of separation of church and state. That is absolute nonsense from the pit. God is the one who sets up kingdoms. God is the one who establishes these things. In fact, his word tells us that the superpower of the world, the very throne, the executive branch, is not Solomon's, but it's God's throne. But we have our place in it. Solomon had his place to sit upon it in God's stead. Because God, it says, thy God loved Israel to establish them forever. Therefore made he thee king over them to do judgment and justice. And then if you look down further, they go off into the blessings of the kingdom. Look what she does. And she gave the king a hundred and twenty talents of gold and of spices, great abundance, precious stones. Neither was there any such spice as the queen of Sheba gave King Solomon. And the servants also of Humran, the servants of Solomon, which brought gold from Ophir, brought algum trees and precious stones. They bring all these things to the forefront. Then she goes into more of the, the glory of it and the wealth of the kingdom, the revenue and the splendor. Look at verse 13. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 603 score and six talents of gold. That is equivalent in our currency well into the trillions. Trillions came in. That means that within the realm of the kingdom of heaven, there are no slaves. The armies 
are not drafted. They would enlist into the armies because with this kind of revenue coming in, the men of the field would enlist because they were well paid, they were well armed, and they were well trained. And we were talking about a time in peacetime. Verse 15, King Solomon made 200 targets of beaten gold, and it goes on for a few verses, talking of the glories of what he did. Verse 17, his throne was a throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. And there were six steps to the throne with a footstool of gold, which were fastened to the throne and stays on each side of the sitting place. Two lions standing by the stays. Twelve lions stood there on the one side, and on the other upon six steps, there was not the like made in any kingdom. Because this is a picture for us to see. So that when we have to live by faith and not by sight, we can look at the kingdom in the Old Testament and we can add, and add a little sight to our faith. If this be the throne of Solomon, which is actually God's in picture, could you only imagine what the heavenly throne looks like? It's enormous. It is glorious. And brothers, one day I'm going to mount a horse and ride all the way from my land to the kingdom and watch him sit there. Verse 20, the drinking vessels were gold, not silver. Because silver is too cheap for this kingdom. This is the best. The very best. We only drink from cups of pure gold. Look at 21. For the king's ships went to Tarshish with the servants of Humran. Every three years once came the ships of Tarshish bringing gold and silver and ivory and apes and peacocks. What that is is they are at the forefront of the global economy. The ships of Tarshish is the economy. This is the NASDAQ. This is the New York Stock Exchange. This is all of them put together into one were the ships of Tarshish of the world. And they all make stops annually for Solomon and his glory. Right now, currently, the U.S. GDP is at $21 trillion a year. $21 trillion is our gross domestic product annual pales in comparison to Solomon. The interesting part is when you look at the U.S. GDP at 21 trillion, number two is China, our enemy. They come in at 13 trillion. You realize that's almost half? Number two in the global power is almost half the amount of finance and money that we bring in. That's how powerful the red, white, and blue is. We are in the days of Solomon. Japan, the third, comes in at a measly five trillion. But King Solomon, though, it says in 22, King Solomon passed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. Now you have to wonder to yourself, how did it get that way? We know where they started. Slaves in Egypt had nothing. Wandered in the desert for 40 years, had nothing. How do you get from there to there? Because that's where we need to learn. 
So if we can actually learn, if you go back a little bit in, in the history, if you go to First Chronicles chapter 11, we find out how it got there. First Chronicles 11, we have the first good king. He's the second king, yes, but he's the first good king. Why is that? Did you ever stop and wonder, well, why, why did God pick, if David's the king and it's going to be the son of David and the lineage is going to be the royal line of David, why do we even have Saul as the king in the first place? Because the first birth is natural. The second birth is in the royal line. You ever notice that with the children of Jacob and Esau? It's always the second born. But the first born is supposed to be the most eminent. And he is earthly. But the second born is heavenly. So if I'll go through to the New Testament with Jesus and he meets with Nicodemus the rabbi and he says, Nicodemus, you don't know that you need to be born again? I've been telling you that for hundreds of years. The first born doesn't get it. It's the second born. So here, anyway, that was a little side note. Here we come into chapter 11 of 1 Chronicles, and, and look how it begins. Look how the glory, the light begins. Then all Israel gathered themselves to David unto Hebron, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Now this actually began just prior to this on a battlefield when David, this same David, would take on the giant in a solo fashion by himself. And we know the story, five smooth stones and he takes it on. But it wasn't long before David has a few good men join him. Look over in verse 10. He talks of the men of David. David's the king, he's young, and now he's gathering these men are actually there gathering to him, following him. It says in verse 10, These also are the chief of the mighty men whom David had, who strengthened themselves with him. Notice there's a strengthening of it. They, they weren't designed this way. They strengthened themselves and became this way. Who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom and with all Israel, to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Now look how this goes as they're explaining the embryonic stage of the glory and how we got there. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 11, And this is the number of the mighty men whom David had, Jehoshabim, the Hakmonite. Uh, if you look into different places, it's pronounced with a T, a Tachmanite. But for here, it's Hakmanite, the chief of the captains. He lifted up his spear against 300 slain by him at one time. Do you realize what feat that that is for this man, one man to take a spear and to wipe out 300 all at one time by himself? Verse 12. After him was Eleazar, the son of Dodu, the Ahoite, who was one of the three mighties. He was with David at Padamim, and there were Philistines. Uh, the Philistines were gathered together to battle, where was a parcel of ground full of barley. 
And the people, look at this, the people fled from before the Philistines. That means the average people were scared to death and ran for their lives and went AWOL and abandoned their posts because this parcel of ground was an incredibly important parcel because this parcel was a parcel of barley. This is the supply line for the armies. The Philistines know this and they are willing to die for it. The armies of God have abandoned ship, but not everybody. Just a few didn't flee. But this man, it says that, verse 14, and they set themselves in the midst of that parcel and delivered it and slew the Philistines and the Lord saved them by a great deliverance. When everybody else is afraid, there's a few men that are willing to fight for it. We cannot lose the ship. If we perish, we perish. And if you run through, there's, there's a whole list of these guys. Look at verse 22. Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabzeel. In other words, his, his dad was, uh, was valiant. He became valiant, who had done many acts. It says that he slew two lion-like men of Moab. Also, he went down and slew a lion in a pit in a snowy day. He's, he's wrestling with a lion in the snow. And wins. Verse 23, And he slew an Egyptian, a man of great stature, five cubits high. This man, this Egyptian, is almost eight feet tall. And in the Egyptian's hand was a spear like a weaver's beam. And he went down to him with just a staff and plucked the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own sword. Stephen King can't come up with these kind of things. (laughs) These are very tenacious men who are not easy to get along with. Do they have nothing better to do than to put their lives in jeopardy? Don't they have farms and families? Don't they have friends? Don't they have jobs? Don't they have stuff? Why are these particular men willing to put their lives in jeopardy? Why do you do what you do? Why do you not do what you don't do? Is there not a cause? Or are you doing it? Because if you are, let's join us. Scan the list here with me, if you will, though. If you look down through to the next page, there's not that many. Verse 26 27, 28, 29, list the names of these men. Can't pronounce a single one of them. Their mother, from their mother was, was, must have been, uh, um, you know, something. To name them like this, you know, I mean, like the Ithorite and the Garib and these kind of things. But, but look at the names. There's just these lists of names and there's not many. But they did it. They did it. That's what led to Solomon and his glory and the temple and the throne and the gold and the cups. How did they get there? Because of these men and a few lively women. Can't leave them out because otherwise I'll get emails. (laughs) 
All right. So then when we come back to Amos, look what we find. Because that was the memory lane. That was the days of the zenith of the career. This was the days of the glory days of David and his mighty men. That was the time of Solomon and all his glory. But all of that now, when we come down to the final chapter of Amos, that whole glorious picture is crumbling. It's going to dissolve totally into an absolute catastrophe. The city on a hill. The light will go out. Verse 6, Amos 9, 6. After the picture that is set before us of the drowning of Egypt, he says in 6, It is he that God, that is, this is God that builds his stories in the heavens. God is the one in control and hath founded his troop in the earth. Those are the men of David. Those are the troops. And brothers, those are us. In our day, there are no others. He hath founded his troop in the earth. He that calleth for the waters of the sea and poureth them upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. And he says something interesting right before the end. He says, wait a minute. Verse 7, Are ye not as the children of the Ethiopians unto me, O children of Israel? Are are you not as the, the children of the Ethiopians, saith the Lord? Have not I brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt? He's including the whole continent when he says the the children of Ethiopians. You at one time were citizens of Ethiopia, specifically Egypt. Are are ye not as the children of the Ethiopians unto me? Are are you? Is is there no difference at all? What's the point? Why bother bringing you out of Egypt and out of Ethiopia if you're just going to act and do the same as the Ethiopians? What's the point? Have not I brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt? And he did it in an insurrection. You do realize that. Like you hear on the news, well, the insurrection of January 6th, insurrection. You know, like as if an insurrection is a bad word. Well, maybe you need to look back to July 4th, 1776. What exactly was that? An insurrection. It was a rebellion against the crown. And that wasn't the first one. God led the insurrection when he took a million citizens of Egyptians and called them by a different name and made them free. They were slaves under tyranny and God made them free. Gave them their freedom. Have I not brought you up out of that mess? And a very interesting verse, God adds a couple other names that you would think are the enemies of God. The Philistines. Look at the graciousness in these storm clouds as God does a very obscure verse. Have not I brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftar? Wait a minute. God did that? Because the Philistines were always, you know, the enemies of God. But in his gracious hand, he led the wicked Philistines in an insurrection and established them in Philistia. A second insurrection. And God, by his hand, led them to freedom, and they screwed it up. 
And then look at what he does. He says it a second time. And the Philistines from Kafter and the Syrians from Kerr. Again, an insurrection where God Almighty took somebody who was wicked and saved their lives, saved them, and brought them out in an insurrection and established them in another land to prove his trophy of grace. How gracious is he? But let me tell you something, brothers. When we're reading this verse, we have to apply it to our own lives. You learn the Bible in its culture and its custom, and then apply it to your own lives. Otherwise, it becomes nothing more than a textbook, which it is not. It is a living book. It is our guide to the promised land. So when you read this verse, O children of Israel, saith the Lord, have not I brought thee up, Israel, out of the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaphtar, and the Syrians from Kerr, and the Americans from Britain? It's no different. How many names are on the list that we read? Not very many. Do you know how many names are on the list of the Declaration of Independence? 56. 56 men put their mark and said, we are not going to take it anymore. And once they were British under tyranny, and now they are Americans under freedom because 56 men risked their lives by writing it down on the Declaration of Independence. And let me tell you something, brothers. We have a whole lot more than 56 men among us. We have the potential to take on the crown. Brothers, we are sitting on a pile of dynamite. And all we need to do is light the fuse. <laughs> It's happened before, and we can do it again. For the glory of his majesty, the king. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth, saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. Wait a minute. Didn't we learn from the whole book for three transgressions and for four, a fire, and it's over? What's happening here? Verse 9, For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn sifted in a sieve. He's going to take them, and the illustration is throw them into a big sieve, the whole nation, and he's going to shake them out over the entire world in captivity and in dispersion. And he's shaking them and shaking them, and the dust and the chaff is being separated. But notice that what he says after the sieve, he says, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. Not one kernel of corn will perish. The chaff will be gone but not one saved person will be lost. Does that not sound like Jesus Christ to you? All the Father gives to me shall come to me, and I will lose none. Again, 
in these terrible storm clouds, we have the most beautiful silver lining of grace. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. But in that day, I will raise up a tabernacle of David that is fallen. Why? Is it because they're good? No. For we have learned that actually they are bad. Because the truth of the matter is only bad people go to heaven. Because people who think that they are good don't go. Are you good? Do you think that you're good? Because you're not. Neither am I. Look what he says. After all the bad news, I'm going to sieve and destroy you. No one will even exceed. Yet in that day, a day forward that is still future for us today, in that day, will I raise up the tabernacle of David. Now the interesting thing is, is normally it's the house of David or the family of David or the lineage of David. But he does say that here. He calls them the tabernacle of David, which is also a familiar word, the tabernacle or the tent. But the Hebrew word here gives a very derogatory Hebrew slant to it. It's a tent, but it is a filthy, muddy tent, a hut. If the description is, is it's a hut. And what you're doing is you're coming to something that was as glorious as in the days of Solomon when there was gold and we wouldn't even touch silver, but yea, all fine gold. And now we are coming down to the end. And what we find is this body laying on the ground in a dirty, filthy hut. And somebody comes to that person that's laying there on the battlefield and they're laying still and you touch them and you say, wait a minute, this person still has a pulse, a weak pulse, but a pulse nevertheless. And God says that I will raise up again for my glory and my majesty. In that day will I raise up this hut, this dying thing of David that has fallen and close up the breaches thereof. I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old. Jesus said, pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And that prayer is here answered. From hull to helm. That it may possess, now look, that it may possess the remnant of Edom, Edom's the enemy, that it may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen which are called by my name. Whoa, wait a minute. You know who he's referring to there? That's us. We are the heathen that are called by his name. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Can you hear in the faint distance of the green hills of Judea, 
You begin to hear the faint sounds of the drumbeat. You're beginning to hear the whistle of the fife. And here comes the champion, the king of kings and lord of lords to save and to keep his promise to King David that will never go. I don't care how bad they get. The promise is the promise. And here comes the champion through the woods horseback, the eastern sky breaking through. What is this, this noise that I hear? I think it is the shout of the Hebrews in the camp. And it is. For here comes our champion. Verse 13, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper. What is that? And the treader of grapes, him that soweth the seed. Remember the picture when they came in as the spies for the promised land? Sunday school in like third grade? There you have two guys standing there with a big pole and the big cluster of grapes that is so big that it's like eight feet long and the grapes are this big. It's not 100% accurate, but it's, but it, but it's but you know, you get, it's third graders. That's what he's talking about here. There are people who think that the book of Genesis is all allegory. Well, then I guess Amos is too. But it's not. It's true. What he's saying here is, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him that sows the seed. He says that the, in, the, in the promised land, in the millennium, the fruit will be so abundant that you won't even have time. You'll still be doing a harvest in your field. And before you have so much harvest and so much fruit that by the time it comes to plant seed, you're still not done harvesting the field. It is so abundant and so lush and so green. It is the land of milk and honey. And it is so good that you don't even have time to reap the fields. By the time that is, it's already time. It's in the spring. The mountains shall drop down sweet wine and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel. And they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. We went from a garden to a garden. The Garden of Eden. Down they go. And now up they come. From a garden to a garden. Because of Jesus Christ. Verse 15, And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. The book of Amos. You've been listening to Time in the Vineyard with pastor-teacher Jeff Toring. Today's broadcast was brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. For more information, you can call the church at 330-554-7606 or check us out on the web at libertyvalleychurch.org. That's libertyvalleychurch.org.